podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to unless you want to i'm kate and i'm molly and we're gonna tell you where you can find us this time because we always forget so if you'd like to (laughs) uh, connect with us on instagram we are readers underscore pod there i think it's the same on twitter readers underscore pod um and we don't have a threads account yet but stay tuned (laughs) mastodon (laughs) yeah a blue sky um yeah so the other thing i was going to mention too is that i personally started a sub stack it's for my writing so it's not necessarily related to the pod but if you're interested in the podcast topics you might also be interested in some of the writing i do and that is molly the fox dot substack.com so you can read more about what i do there yeah (laughs) Okay, so we did it. We plugged our socials. We're basically marketing gurus. We've achieved marketing enlightenment, and <laughs> here we are. And that's that's that ready is financial to be famous. Security. Money, please. <laughs> Funny that we're joking about money because this book is about money. And before you stop listening, before you turn this podcast off. <laughs> I was laughing. I was like, when I wrote my outline, I like wrote the intro and then I was like, I know what you're thinking. Yuck. (laughs) And I was like, okay, maybe don't like start with that. So let's rewind a little bit and I'm going to tell you what we're talking about today. (laughs) It's like I've never done a podcast before. Every time it's the first time. So today I'm going to tell Kate about the book Financial Feminist by Tori Dunlap. The full title is Financial Feminist, Overcome the Patriarchy's Bullshit to Master Your Money and Build a Life You Love. Nice. Um, Tori Dunlap is the founder of a company called Her First 100K. You may have seen her stuff on like TikTok, Instagram, she has gone viral uh, a few times on just videos that she posts and um, her hatred of Dave Ramsey. He's just like, he's just so grouchy and mean. He's terrible. If you don't know who Dave Ramsey is, um, you should look him up, but you should not take any bit of his financial advice. Anti-Ramsey podcast. We're going the other end of the spectrum. Um, so I'm going to give a little intro and then we'll just go through some of the main themes in the book. Tori Dunlap shares her personal story of how she became a financial coach, provides practical advice for women to take control of their money. In her book, she emphasizes the importance of women learning about money management and investing and encourages them to do things like reflecting on their emotions around money, building a realistic budget, negotiating for higher salaries and advocating for their futures. Dunlap also addresses the gender wealth gap and offers strategies for closing it, such as investing early and often, building multiple streams of income, and overall, Financial Feminist is a guide for women to achieve financial independence and empowerment that is sensitive to a variety of barriers and privileges that make up the world of personal finance. I'm going to put a little caveat on that sentence, the guide for women to achieve financial independence. I think financial independence is like a very 
it really depends on what you mean by financial independence. You know, like when I think of financial independence, I think of, oh, I don't have to work. And I wouldn't say that this book is going to teach you how to quit your job because you make so much money from the stock market. So <laughs> let's just put a little asterisk on that sentence. Okay. So by financial independence, she means being able to be financially independent from other people aside from your employer. What she teaches is how to be financially stable and how to start like managing your money well and feeling confident about your choices and understanding what options are available to you and how to take care of yourself in the future. Okay. I don't think this book is like a life hack for how you can suddenly be making so much money off of your investments that you don't have to work anymore. Okay. And I'll get into why I think that. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> I think that is um, a much more reasonable goal for a book than something that's unreasonable for most people. <laughs> yeah, I think if the book was like billed as, oh, I'll teach you how to be financially independent, then that would I would be very skeptical. Although I feel like that is sort of the underlying suggestion is that if you do all these things, you can achieve financial independence. But I think as I will explain, I don't actually think that that's true for like a variety of reasons. Okay. So her book is set up in sections and she asks you to move through each one and complete the exercises and homework in them before you move on to the next. And then most sections are set up in this sort of like misconceptions versus truth format where she'll go through several common misconceptions about the topic of the chapter, like debt, budget, investing, etc., And then she'll go through some alternative perspectives that are based in truth or facts rather than like the shame or societal conditioning that we experience around money, especially women. So is this kind of like a workbook then? Like there's an expectation that you'll like go through and take her suggestions to fill out your own budget and things like that? Yeah, exactly. And um, there's like pages in the book where you can actually write like answers to some questions. So there's like actual workbook pages. And then there's like suggestions to like open up an Excel and do like certain budgeting. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So there's lots of stuff that she suggests suggests you do outside of the book. And then the book itself has like a lot of information from additional experts beyond herself mm-hmm. that like they have sort of I don't know how to describe them, but they're like inserted sections of the book where she has an expert weigh in on the topic that she is discussing in that section. So like consolidating debt or like investing and like more like socially aware investing strategies. You know, some people don't want to buy certain um, index funds or whatever because there's lots of like oil or, you know, the prison establishment or whatever, and they don't want their money going to that. And so... They have some suggestions of like other things you can do, but like some realistic, sometimes that's what has to happen for financial stability in our very broken system. So that's kind of how the book is set up. I felt that the setup was really accessible and it was easy to read. She writes in a way that is engaging and fun. So it was as far as like a financial advice book goes, really (laughs) palatable. (laughs) So my first question for you, Kate, is on a scale from I literally hate talking and or thinking about money to buying stocks as a hobby of mine, Mm -hmm. where would you say you fall on the personal finance enjoyment spectrum? Enjoyment spectrum. Um, 
I would say maybe like a six and a half or a seven. Okay. Yeah. So like I feel comfortable talking about the the topic, but I wouldn't say that like I would be the person at a party to bring it up. Like it, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's one of my like personal hobbies, but I definitely feel comfortable enough with my own decision making around the topic to like hold a conversation about it or to like offer advice if somebody mm-hmm. asked me. Um, I don't offer unsolicited advice. I'm not <laughs> an insane person that just walks around <laughs> being like, you know what you should do? Open up a Roth IRA. Um, so, yeah, I would say, like, okay. yeah, somewhere in there. All right. I feel, like, pretty much the same. I definitely don't hate it, and I can hold my own in a conversation, but it's not something I would describe as a hobby for damn sure. <laughs> Okay, so that's good. We've got our baseline of where we're at in this conversation. Theme number one is helping women master the basics. So that would be like spending, saving budgets, and then also the emotions around money, which Dunlap argues like you really need to start there in order to figure out the rest of it. So Mm -hmm. one of the, the main premises of the book is that she argues men and women are taught about money and how to manage their money very differently okay so that's like what inspired her to write the book and i'm going to read a section where she describes what she means by that so when i first got started on my own money journey trying to find personal finance guidance that wasn't written during the fucking salem witch trials i would google something harmless like financial advice for women and over and over again i saw the most interesting thing Financial advice to men would tell them to invest in the stock market, negotiate their salaries, and buy real estate. It would give not only specific financial tasks, but also ones that were focused on building wealth and making more money. All great advice. But here's the whammy. The paragraphs of advice geared toward women were littered with thinly veiled misogyny. You're going to see that as an unfortunate reoccurring theme of this book. If women were taught anything about money... It was day-to-day finances, managing the household budget, grocery shopping, coupon clipping, spending less. The gender-specific advice I found around money and wealth was always tied to spending. We went to the mall too frequently, and our purses and lattes and manicures were the reason we weren't building wealth. If I sent Timothy Chalamet a DM, DM every time I read the phrase designer handbag used in a condescending way, he'd have blocked me a long time ago. Does she know Timothy Chalamet? No, but she does oh. this thing that I don't like in the book where she jokes a lot about fried chicken and having a crush on Timothy Chalamet. Okay. And it's like, okay, <laughs> sure. Specific. But I'm sure that really works for someone. I'm sure it does, but in like ten or fifteen years, <laughs> is anyone gonna know who Timothy Chalamet is? Like, maybe not. Fried chicken, I guess, is timeless, but <laughs> Yikes. So anyway, let's not focus on that boat. <laughs> Fried chicken is just not my greatest love. So I guess I just, that I do one just doesn't, it, doesn't. I just wouldn't me. be putting that in my book personally. <laughs> and I can say that because I am personally writing a book. So and it's not, it's like, and fried chicken is not And I theme. do not discuss. <laughs> what if fried you're writing chicken? a whole book about fried chicken, Molly, and you just now revealed it? And I was like, this whole time my memoir has been about fried chicken. And you were like, well, this is where our friendship ends, actually. <laughs> oh, no, no. I would still read that. That sounds interesting. Um, oh, it sounds a uh, little dramatic, but interesting. Well, which that's kind of my brand, you know, like making something out of nothing. <laughs> uh, 
cries. Oh, <laughs> so that was like a little too too painful. Uh, <laughs> Ow, I hurt my own feelings. You're like, <laughs> I know, I'm like, <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, okay. Damien Loftus just wrote that book about um, hot dogs, and I do want to read that. It's called Raw Dog. Have you seen that oh, cover? No. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. Don't. It could happen. Don't cross that off the list. <laughs> we can give it well, a try. <laughs> so the point is, okay. women are not not taught <laughs> to manage their money in the same way that men are. And a lot of the advice that women get is shame based. Like you spend too much money, and you are not you're doing the wrong things instead of like, here's what you should be doing. You know, it's a lot of like, stop doing that instead of you should be doing these things Mm. kind of advice. That's interesting. I, I don't disagree that there's a lot of um, shame around financial advice. I think that that's a hundred percent connected to living in late capitalism and like Mm -hmm. what our society is and how there's also this myth in America that, if you have a problem, it's an individual problem and it couldn't possibly be tied back to other societal issues. Um, but I guess I I have not had the experience that that's been gendered for me. Uh, okay. I think I know a lot of men who have also experienced shame around debt and spending and budgeting. Um, so yeah, I guess I just wonder, like, is that, do you feel like that connected for your experience? Because I don't, I, I don't know if that's fully representative of how I've had experiences in my mm-hmm. life being taught personal finance. Yeah, I mean, my parents were not very, they did not really focus on treating us like girls versus boys, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Like, my dad is an engineer and he was always like, he printed up little like business cards for us when we were kids that said like future engineer, cute. you know? <laughs> yeah. Which like my sister actually became one. So it was like really cute, but not me, not me, baby. Yeah, like it was cute um, for someone in the family. <laughs> yeah. It worked for someone, not me. Um, anyway, <laughs> but so I never felt that way, like from my parents, which I do think is where like a lot of that can start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, and, and I, I don't know that, like, I do think, like, growing up in the church, there was a lot more, like, shame placed on women around, like, the things we were doing wrong. And that can translate into, like, spending. The place that I do really notice it, that I feel like it is gendered and kind of, like, there's a lot of misogyny involved, is when it comes to investing. Mm. Like, there's a lot of things that are, I think, maybe unintentionally gatekept and and there is like a, a language and all this information that you need to know that is not made very accessible to women or women are like discouraged from learning it because of just like the boys club that surrounds it. Hmm. And the only like the best people often to ask advice, like if you call Fidelity or wherever you have your 401k or whatever, you're going to get on the phone with a man. And it's, like, really challenging sometimes to, like, maneuver that and ask your questions without feeling so defeated by how stupid they think you are to, like, keep going. And, like, that's maybe more of, like, my own experience around it. But I I definitely felt that of, like, 
I know men don't want me to understand about this. And it is like very obvious in the way they have like set up the information channels to understand about these things. Mm. So that's where I sense it more than like some of this like base level stuff. That's interesting. Yeah, maybe maybe I'm just like really lucky in that sense that I've never had that experience of feeling like um, I was not allowed to learn about these different things. Um, but yeah, I I can imagine like a lot of it is probably too just like a byproduct of men already being misogynistic. And then this is just like something that they're also following through those like misogynistic tendencies of like, well, you're not going to understand this anyway and kind of being like demeaning about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not going to explain it to you kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I, I I think it's like pretty obvious that the field of finance is male dominated and like that might contribute to in terms of like, you know, when and how people learn about things. Um, I also think, though, that there's, like, a whole group of men, when we're thinking about the internet, that think they have a handle on investment and finance, personal finance, and they absolutely do not. Um, And so that's also an interesting thing. And I wonder if she ever touches on that, that, like, some of it is just posturing. Like, maybe, maybe they're expected to know these things more than women, or mm-hmm. it, that part of it is gendered, but whether or not they're actually taught personal finance and investment and investing in a reasonable, like applicable way, I mm-hmm. think is a little questionable. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I don't, I don't recall that she touches on that necessarily, but I do think that there is a huge element of like the internet playing a role in this and that maybe part of the perception for women is that like there's all these men who just like really understand the stock market and, and talk about it with authority and like crypto and all of this stuff. And a part of the perception for women that this is a closed field that, that there has to be like a real desire to break into it in order for it to happen. And I think you know, women are not encouraged as much to be interested in those things from a younger age. And maybe part of that is like biological and maybe part of it is just like conditioning that like, oh, you don't think that's interesting. Don't pay attention to that. Yeah. <laughs> and so it just kind of reinforces it over time. Um, but it's it's something that both men and women should be taught because, you know, in the past, maybe it was more the case that women would rely on men for their 401k, but that's not the case anymore. And yeah, and we're much past the one income household. Oh my God. Well blueprint. past that. But that doesn't yeah. exist really anymore unless you no. are making, you know, half a million dollars or more a year. Right. And, and regardless of like, whether or not you are relying on your spouse for some income, you should have a 401k and like have all these things set up for yourself because you might, that person might not be in your life forever for whatever reason. So Mm -hmm. like you really need to learn early to start planning for yourself. And I think women are way discouraged from doing that versus men. And so if like a man has been thinking about it since he was 20 and a woman only starts thinking about it when she's 30, like that is a huge difference that like really you can't necessarily catch up. Mm -hmm. So I think 
that is kind of the real difference I see where women are just not encouraged to be like focused on these things from a younger age. And that is a huge disadvantage to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely feel like my, and this again, goes back to like more of a like personal influences, but um, my parents were very adamant about financial independence and mm-hmm. um, all of us, uh, I have two brothers. So all of us thinking about it, um from like a younger age and also like I don't know if you'll talk about this later but um I think a lot of people are scared of the word debt and um don't think about it as something that could be used to your advantage we're taught when we were in high school like you know what a credit card is and what it can be Mm -hmm. and how it can be helpful and how like how to pay off your bill and make sure that you're not like going into extreme debt like things like that um which are really important, but also kind of go back to that, like, emotional element of it, which is, like, if you are always thinking of debt as something that's shameful and bad, then you're not going to think about it as something that can be used to your advantage either, which then means that you're kind of closing down a whole avenue of um, potential when it comes to your personal finances there, too. Yeah, I think growing up, because of like people like Dave Ramsey, in my mind, the the only good way to do things was to buy it in cash because that was like, you know, that is you're not paying any interest, blah blah blah. It, and it's a simple transaction, right? You you go, you buy the thing, and then the transaction is over. It's done, and you don't owe any money, and you're not spending, you know, like a car that costs thirty thousand dollars eventually costs fifty thousand dollars because of all the interest you've paid, blah blah blah. But there's like a a lot of ways to use it to your advantage. Like um, I, what I do every month is I put all of my expenses on a credit card and I pay it off every month, but then I get like cash back on that card. So, you know, just little things like that, that I didn't, you know, I learned as I went, but it's a real different approach to utilizing debt and financial tools that is much different than like put your all of your budget for the month in envelopes and <laughs> spend that cash yeah. like at you know like that no I mean listen that that might work for some people in terms of like maybe they feel more secure when they're doing that and they feel like safer and going back to the emotional component of it that's important too. And if you are too scared of having, like, I know people who have a lot of anxiety, who's like, I'm not going to use the automatic payment for my credit card because I'm too scared that it won't go through or that it won't work. Um, so like, you know, that's kind of an example of the same thing where it's like, yeah, you should, you for sure should make it, uh, work for your own emotions and anxiety and whatever. Um, but to your point, like that money could be working better for you and you're having it sit in a binder with envelopes is not going to make you extra points that you can then cash in for flights or whatever you know yeah so yeah it it does make a difference yeah so I think speaking of the emotions of money like that is kind of where she starts like she wants you to go back and think about one of your first memories around money and just investigate that and help let that help inform you now in the present of like what really formed your sense of money and the feelings you have around it. So 
you know, if your first memories of money were really negative or it was like money was really scarce or whatever, like that probably has informed how you deal with money today. And it's really hard to understand where you might be running into issues currently if you don't go back and sort of reevaluate or not reevaluate, but just investigate what started your emotions around money. The feelings you have that are really negative around money don't have to stay that way if you learn more about it and can learn how you can take control of it. So that I think is like a good positive message. So one of the things that she suggests you do when you're starting out and you're trying to understand your emotions around money, she suggests that you think about the way you spend and determine um, value categories so you can know what are the things you care about spending your money on the most that you get the most enjoyment out of so that you can prioritize money to those things versus spending money on things you care about less or more impulsively because, I mean, I think we all sort of spend money when we're sad or bored or like whatever. That's like a thing that people do. So she suggests that you set up these value categories so that you have just like a better mental landscape for shopping or spending your money. And she has her categories are travel, dining out, and what she calls nesting, which is like home decor, plants, appliances, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, and I was thinking about mine and I would say that mine are also travel and dining out, which for me includes coffee in the book. She talks, she gives a lot of different examples of like what your categories could be. And one of them is like coffee. And I was just like, fuck no, it's not going to be one category in and of itself. Okay. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's surprising to me that it wouldn't also be in eating out. Like that seems like an obvious, yeah. like it's like eating and drinking out of the home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's all the so, same thing. Anyway. So just to be clear, these value categories are things in addition to your necessities and savings that you are determining you want to spend your discretionary funds on. Is that kind of... Yeah. And she doesn't like necessarily set it up like... She does have... You, you do have like this hierarchy of things you need to do first. Like the first thing she says is like you need an emergency fund. And okay. then it's like... Then you start paying off, like once you have the emergency fund, then you start paying off high interest debt. And once you have your high interest debt done, then you start, you know, it's like this cascading system okay. that she sets up. But this is more just her talking about like understanding your spending habits. And she really wants when you are approaching budgeting and other things for you to not feel like there's restrictions on you, which is what a budget usually feels like, that you can't have the things that you want. Mm -hmm. And so she's saying that if you set up these value categories, it can give you more of a sense of freedom with your money because you understand what you really like and enjoy. And so you, you have more money to spend on those things because over time you stop spending money on things that you don't really like as much because you really oriented yourself to what you want. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So mine would travel, dining out, and clothes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was curious, what what would you say, I know this is like you only have a minute or whatever, but what would you say your value <laughs> categories are? Yeah, I, I would say it's probably the same as yours. I would say it's probably clothes. Because like I don't, I don't spend a lot of money on um, – like, I'm trying to think, like, what do other people spend money on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, but that's, like, the point is to, to just, like, think through what types of things you like doing. And then, you know, once you set up your value categories, you can always um, 
they can evolve over time, but that's mm-hmm. just like a way that you can understand what you like more and then prioritize spending money on those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this does start to get into what one of the issues I have with the book, which is that, I mean, I have now in my life had a, a very wide spectrum of incomes and now in my life working at a big company, I feel like this advice is interesting and approachable and are like not approachable, but accessible and like something that I could apply to my life. Useful. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But in the past, like when I was living in a big city making like $45,000 a year, uh, this would have just been like fucking bullshit to me because it just is like, I don't know. It it feels like like, this advice. What discretionary funds? (laughs) Yeah. It just was like, I was living kind of like moment to moment being like, yes, I am going to buy that coffee today and I will be anxious about it all week. Cool. Um, (laughs) Yes. I'm going to spend $200 on this flight and I, I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope that that like works out. And I could have probably done more to like reduce my sense of like, I have no idea if this is going to work out, (laughs) but there was only so much I could do with what I had. And I think some of this advice would have just made me feel a little bit more defeated because Mm. yeah, I don't know. It just, I think I did a lot of these things sort of unconsciously. Like I did some of those like hierarchies that I described like emergency fund, pay off high interest debt, like, and slowly that helped me get to a place even with like a low salary of feeling better about things. But Mm -hmm. I think some of this advice would still have felt frustrating to me because it was just like, you only have the money you have to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I agree with that. And also when I was making my first, um, full-time position, I was making $30,000 in Chicago. And, um, I think, one of the things that was so uh, incredible to me when I um, am now at my like current salary, which is obviously more than that because mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't get less, so <laughs> um, was I was like, oh, I'm able to save so much more. I'm able to put so much. I'm able to max out my Roth IRA every year and contribute to my 401k. Mm -hmm. Like I can do both. I don't have to choose between the two and I don't have to choose between those two in a savings account. Right. Um, and then in addition to that, I can also contribute to like our employee stock plan purchasing plan, which is something that my, um, employer offers. So it is, um, always like it's a little funny because it's like well yeah when you have more money you can do more with it that's a very simple concept but also I think there should be an acknowledgement that when you have such little funds to begin with you do have to make hard decisions between necessities as opposed to making hard decisions between ones and that is different and it, it, it like a different emotionally and like different ramifications for your everyday life too right Yeah, I think like the whole conversation around value categories would have been frustrating to me because it was just like, the truth was like, I didn't have any discretionary money. Mm -hmm. And I would spend it sometimes. And that meant that I like, you know, it it, it was just like a balance or whatever. Exactly, exactly. And so it was like the idea of value categories. It's like, okay, well, fuck you. Like, (laughs) 
Yeah. My value category is surviving this month. My so. value category was literally buying my insulin. So I yeah. don't know what to say to exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> and she does acknowledge that, but I think yeah. it's not enough. It wasn't enough for me. Like as someone who like lived in both of those realities, it just, yeah, it was like not, I, I could sense like, Ooh, this would have been harder for me a few years ago. Like this wouldn't have been as like, wouldn't have felt as useful. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of wondered, like, who do you think the core audience for this is? Like, would you say it's, like, a 22-year-old with their first job? Would you say it's, like, someone in their mid-30s? Like, who would you say – like, I, I guess age mostly because obviously it's geared towards women. Yeah. I mean, I bet she – like, her target audience when she was selling the book was, like, 20 to 40-year-olds or, like, 18 to 35 or something like that. But I really think that – what I know from women, and I, that's to be fair, I did know a lot of women who worked in nonprofits, so maybe it's different for someone who, like, started at a corporation when they were 20 or whatever. But I really think that this advice is something that most of the women I have known wouldn't have been able to really start taking in the way that it's laid out until they were in their 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, I didn't ever had an emergency fund when I was living like that you know, maybe I had like a couple thousand dollars, but that was not like enough for three months of expenses or whatever the like standard is. And the reason, part of the reason I was able to do that was because I knew like if something bad happened, my parents would help me. Um, so I did other things like I prioritized paying off debt or mm-hmm. like whatever so that I could get to a place where I had more money to play with. But that's all like really she can't speak to every single reality that exists in a book like this. So mm-hmm. I understand that she's just trying to be like, if in a vacuum, these are the things you should do first. Like you should have a, an emergency fund. And, but I think it's, it's difficult because if you were making what I was making, it would have taken me maybe a year or two to get to that emergency fund of like three months of expenses. And that would have meant like, I couldn't have done like anything else like travel or anything. Yeah. And then that's two more years that I couldn't have been investing because the idea is that you put all of the money you have in an emergency fund before you start doing some of those other things. But it's like, we also know that time in investment accounts is what matters more than anything. And so there's some, some conflict in the advice, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I like does she um does she reconcile that at all? Like does she have a discussion about any of that? Uh, because I mean, retirement accounts especially, but all investments um are are very much time dependent and it's a very important, perhaps one of the most important components of investing in your retirement accounts. Um that like even if you're, if you start at, you know, like you're saying 40 and you're putting more in, um, but for less time, you're still probably not going to be able to catch up to someone who started when they were 20 and was putting less in each year, but ultimately it yeah. compounded. And so I wonder, like, is there any like discussion of that or is it just kind of like too, too difficult to get into the specifics of that? I, she definitely talks about like time, prioritizing time in your investment accounts. So it's possible that she does sort of speak to that balance of like, you know, the sooner you start doing this, the better, even though there's like other things like this emergency fund that you need. I can't really remember if she does that or not. I, what I recall is that it was 
like the hierarchy was very much like this is what you should do in this order mm-hmm. even though I, what i think was missing was this discussion around w- how to navigate it if you are like making poverty level mm-hmm. income sure. which in a big city like 30 to 40,000 dollars is that so like that i felt was missing from the conversation because it's like if that's your reality it it might be better to like split things a little bit across some things mm-hmm. if that's possible because then in five years, maybe you have more of an emergency fund, but you also have been putting something in your 401k and that yeah. matters. And yeah. so I think there wasn't a lot of like, and again, she can only do so much, but there wasn't a lot of discussion around like how to navigate this if you were extremely poor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, like what you were saying about it would have taken you a year or two to build up your emergency fund is like also funny because it's like, yeah. And that would have been if you didn't hit any emergencies in those two years. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I'm sorry. Your car absolutely has to work. You can't have any like, you know, uh, bones that are broken or like uh, medical emergencies, like, you know, just all of that kind of stuff too, where it's like, yeah, that works like in theory, but in practice it's it's probably pretty difficult to achieve yes exactly so I think there was room for more discussion around that just like when you are really struggling with your income like how to navigate some of these things to help you in the future even though the present is like really brutal to get through Mm -hmm. um the second theme that is like really a big part of the book is um how women can build wealth so This is the part that I was the most interested in because a lot of the other stuff like, you know, setting up a high yield savings account, getting debt paid off, managing a budget. These are all things that Mm -hmm. I feel much more comfortable and familiar with. So I was like ready for the next level. Yeah. Like, let's talk about investment. Let's talk about like me wealthy. Yeah. Like I want to know about financial independence like Mm -hmm. that. I would love that. Do you have a a life hack for this? Yeah. And I I would love to learn those things by not having to sift through literal tons of investment bro bullshit and lingo that I don't understand because it's designed to be exclusionary to me. Like Also, like learning things from the internet is both good and bad, right? Like it's it's yeah. good that it exists and is accessible to anyone. It's bad in that it's really hard for people to find the gems in the rough right and there's a lot of bad advice out there too because guess what you don't have to be qualified in anything to get on the internet and spout off about whatever you feel like (laughs) so it it does depend on like where you're going for advice and who you're seeking it from too in addition to just like the volume of advice that you are like trying to find helpful stuff yeah Yeah, there's like tons of it. And if you don't know very much about it, you won't know what is good or bad advice. So it's like rough. Um, So I'm going to go through a few points of this section that I found interesting and helpful. But overall, I would say I was disappointed in this part because she focuses on investing through retirement accounts like a 401k or a Roth IRA. And she does talk about the differences between stocks like what an EFT is and what a mutual fund is and what an index fund is and she explains Mm -hmm. those things and describes that that's additional investment that you can make on top of your 401k 
But it was like, yeah, okay, obviously. Like for me, that was like, yes, I know. And <laughs> and what do I, I do like with it, all of that? Though? Yeah, <laughs> like it just felt very basic. And I was wanting something mm. more complex. Like, you know, girl, teach me how to short a stock. I'm begging you, like, please, <laughs> you know. But like, that was not what we were doing here. It was like, this is how I'm you can buy. You to write me a three million dollar check. Please, uh, what is wrong with you? Why weren't you doing that for me? It's honestly yeah, offensive. It is. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it was like, there's a difference between talking about like, oh, you have to have a 401k and like in your in your Roth IRA, like you need to make sure that the money is not just in that account, but it's actually invested into stocks or bonds or whatever. Like there's two steps. Like, all of that is stuff that some people don't know and need to know. But I was like, I did know that. And I wanted to know more things. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wonder oh. if, like, she'll, I, I wonder if she was thinking about it. Like, did she give any, like, additional resources? Like, here's, if you want to learn more, here's where I would, like, recommend you check it out. Because I honestly feel like in some ways um, that that makes a lot of sense that she would start with the lingo and the jargon and like getting people situated in the space. But it also like to your point makes me wonder if she could provide resources that you feel like you could trust more because she vetted them or whatever. Right. Um, And like a, a reference page would be really helpful. Yeah. And so to be fair to her, she has, like I said, this company called Her First 100K. And that company does like financial coaching and literacy courses for women. And I didn't actually check out the resources yet, but I know that she talks about this community that I think once you take a course or somehow join that business that she has, you get to be part of this community. And there's like a Slack channel or something like that, that you are part of, and you can ask all these questions about financing or financial investments and all sorts of things. And that is like the additional resource she's offering. So it's like, once you've mastered these basic things, there's additional things you can learn about and you can join this community and there's all these like people to help you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Forgot that she's also needing to make money on this. So that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, I'm like, just give us the resources for free, like out of the (laughs) kindness of your heart. And she's like, no, No. I'm trying to make my $500,000 a year. Right. And I think, I mean, all of that is completely legitimate. Mm -hmm. You can only do so much in a book and people need the building blocks to get to the next thing. Yeah. But what frustrates me in the explanation of this is that a few times throughout it's, it's suggested or said outright that this is how you achieve financial independence by doing these things you will get to financial independence. And it's like, dude, no, you fucking won't. Like just putting, (laughs) you can max out your 401k every goddamn year and you can't touch that money until you're in your 60s. And that is still not enough to live off of. Like that is not true. And also that does not take into account that you have to have an employer to contribute to a 401k. (laughs) Yes, exactly. um, So yeah, I mean, I wonder if like... if her definition of financial independence is just the ability to retire at some point, but like, if that's how you feel, then that definition, it would have been helpful for you to explain it a little bit better, you know? Agreed. But I also don't think that is because she talks a lot about how, when she was in her mid twenties, she had saved a hundred K, which she does not 
explain whether or not that was in her retirement account or like across different accounts or what. But she describes that that 100K is what allowed her to quit her job that was toxic and focus on her side business, which was like financial coaching full time and build it into the business she has today that allows her to not have to work a different job and like travel when she wants and just not be beholden to a company. And that is what she describes as financial independence. And it's like, dude, you can't get there by just putting money in your 401k. Like, that is not how it works. I mean, yeah, a couple of things on that. (laughs) Number one, to our earlier point, um, that only works if you, number one, have an employer who is offering a 401k. A lot of employers, like, may not. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also your employer needs to match a pretty you know, spectacular amount for that to be the case. Um, But also, like, I wouldn't necessarily call that financial independence because she's still working, right? Yeah. She still has a business. But she has described that she wouldn't have to work another day in her life. So she's doing this because she wants to, but she doesn't have to. to. But she has not really explained how she did that because she just talks about saving the 100K. And it's like, that doesn't actually make sense. Where did it come from, though? Well, the I think it's she saved a lot in her retirement account, but again, if it was just in her retirement account, that that doesn't really no explain that... how Wait, she how was able to was quit she? her job. She was I think she was like 25 or something, maybe 26 when she quit her corporate job to like take her business full time. Something and about this like... is screaming that she got some gifts money from family members <laughs> i don't that doesn't i'm not totally sold on this I, being I know. an independent venture but i mean I, I don't know i don't know anything about her so i also don't really know like the way she described her family was not that they like they were not super wealthy they were just like mm-hmm. standard but they taught her how to like handle money from a young age mm-hmm. and they encouraged her to save and and all of that but it really doesn't explain it's like she's saying, like, you just do all these things and you can, like, have financial independence like I did. But it's mm-hmm. like you actually didn't explain how you have financial <laughs> independence and what that 100K means. Just do all these things. Number one, save 100K. Number two, profit. It's like, I, we, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I missed a lot of steps. Is the 100K, if the 100K is in investments, then you really can't, depending on what kind of investment you can't use that to live off of that's like for the future sure you're you're probably not taking that out in order to pay your rent right because that would defeat the purpose of an like a a 401k you couldn't really do that and then it wouldn't be like invested for you anymore so it wouldn't be like retirement later and if the 100k is just in savings well Maybe that will supplement you for a while, depending on your lifestyle and how much money you're making through your side business. But that's less than some people make in a year. Like, that's not, that's a lot of money, but it's not that much money. (laughs) (laughs) It also makes me wonder, like, how much was she making at her toxic job? Because, like, to your point, I was never making $100,000 before the age of 25. And so the concept of even if I was saving 50% of my income, which like is not reasonable, I would not have hit even close to that. I mean, if you were making $30,000 a year, it would take you three years of saving your entire (laughs) salary before you were even not 200K. You know, like, yeah, it's so yeah, yeah. funny Something because that's also like, add up. <laughs> so that's my point. It's, it's like the math, the math doesn't add up. 
Yeah, like I feel kind of bad for being like this skeptical about it, but it just is like, and I don't know like if maybe she explains more of her journey and what her, what she means by saving her first 100k. Like maybe she describes that better elsewhere. Yeah. But from just the book alone, I was like, okay, well, if I just follow your advice, that still does not mean that like in order to achieve financial independence the way you've described, I would need to come up with a side hustle, work on that until it's to the point where I could quit my job to do that and then like live off some savings I had and then hope that it like blows up into the kind of huge success that your company has in order to then make enough money off of that to live comfortably on my investments for the rest of my life. Right. Like there's a lot to that that is like that has to work out perfectly for this to be the way you're describing. I, I'm also, I was really curious. So I just looked at her Wikipedia. <laughs> too. Mm, um, and she earned two undergraduate degrees, a bachelor's of science in organizational communications and a bachelor's in theater from the university of Portland in 2016. Um, so that's a, a lot of debt, presumably, unless like she again, got like, parental help i don't know it doesn't say on her wikipedia i feel like she does talk about that in the book but i can't remember what she said about her college debt but then she's talking about after she graduated from college she was living in seattle so like she was living in a in a big city and she was working as a digital marketing manager which i can't imagine was making her at the time over a hundred thousand dollars i not as an entry level yeah I mean, would bet, like, I guess it really depends on where she was working. But like, if she was in agency yeah. work, there's no way it was, I would doubt it was over 70. And, and she may have, like, might have been in like a bigger tech company or something like that, that would have like potentially paid her close to a thousand, a hundred thousand dollars, a thousand dollars a year. <laughs> 25 a bucks a year. <laughs> but you know, I mean, you're doing the exact same thing that I did when I was reading this, which I was like trying to make the math work. And I was like, this doesn't fucking make sense. Like, yeah. I just feel like there are pieces missing. Like, I, Yeah, I, I agree. There, if and, it were more explained, it would be helpful. Right. And I think, I suspect, and I could be wrong, but I suspect that part of the reason it's not more explained is because what she has done is actually not that easy or achievable. Yeah. Because if, if it was, everyone would fucking do it. Yeah. And, and also, so you I would th- probably be talking about that advice like pretty openly because you were like, well, it's really easy and anyone can do yeah. it. And it's like, how? Yes. And then it's like dot 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 (laughs) exactly and i think that she's walking this line between she needs to make this appear very accessible for Mm -hmm. everybody so that she can sell what she does and like be a financial coach but also you need her so that like she needs you to need her too so that she can make money on this yeah and so she like is telling the truth in a lot of ways which is like that she built this company herself and like Mm -hmm. she achieved this herself and like all these things and you can do it too yeah but she also got really lucky. And I don't mean with like, I don't even mean with financial support. I don't know that that happened for her. Well, like, yeah, it's not explicitly said anywhere. I don't know. Yeah. But she got very lucky with like her business being successful. And, mm-hmm. and again, like I'm sure she and worked really hard. She opened her business, which sounds like right. it was like 2019. <laughs> that yes. seems relevant. But it's also luck in that like, she was just naturally inclined and interested in financial stuff. And she mm-hmm. found that she was good at being a coach. And like, these are not things that everyone has. 
Right. And that's not like a bad thing, but it's just like, I think there should have been more acknowledgement that this isn't actually. This isn't necessarily a replicable path. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you can do things absolutely to make yourself more financially stable, mm-hmm. less anxious about money, more secure, yeah. happier overall in your life. But at financial independence is not the same thing as stability and comfort yeah. and yeah. whatever, you yeah. know? Well, and like stability means something different to different people. So it's more achievable because like, absolutely. you can be financially stable and make $40,000 a year, just like depending on where you live and like what you're spending your money on and like how many dependents you have and things like that. So yeah. that's, that definitely seems more reasonable to claim than mm-hmm. financial independence, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, that, she was describing like in some of those sections where she'll have like a different expert or someone come in and talk about their experience mm-hmm. to uh, like help provide more context or information. Mm-hmm. There was one woman who was talking about like, you know, there's a whole section where he talks about increasing revenue streams. And one of the things you can do is starting a side hustle, quote unquote. And she has a woman describe her experience with starting her side hustle, which I forget what it even was, but in Etsy shop. she's, <laughs> I think it was more like a financial literacy thing, sort of like what Dunlap does, but I can't remember now. So the only way to get rich is to... To open like a financial (laughs) literacy for women. (laughs) Is to prey on women. So, but this woman, like what she described was her schedule, like how she kind of makes all these things happen in her life because she was a mom of like one or two young children. Yeah, so she's like, well, I wake up every day at, I think it was like 6 a.m. or something, let's say 6, Mm -hmm. and from like 6.30 to 7.30, I have a workout every day. That's my me time, and I was just like laughing my head off at that because it's like working out is not me time. That's another goddamn chore that I have to do that I do, but it's not me time, and anyone who says that is a fucking lunatic, and I'm so tired of people being like, oh, my workout is my me time. Shut the absolute fuck up. People always say that, and I always think, like, that just sounds, like, a little bit, um, it it feels like blink once if you need help. I know. Where it's, like, I know it's fine if you actually feel that way, but, like, do you actually feel that way? Are you just repeating that because a bunch of influencers said it on Instagram? Yeah, and I know that people really do feel that way, and I'm not trying to, like, minimize that. (laughs) But this just, like, okay, girl. So it's, like, 6.30 to 7.30 is my me time workout. Okay, good for her. And then from like 7.30 to 3 or whatever, she works her full-time job, which is like, first of okay. all, not everyone can just have their schedule be 7.30 to 3. Sure. Yeah. But There's, sure. Yeah. And then she says from 3 to 6 is like family time, non-negotiable. Okay. She like does family time. And then from 6 to 9 or 6 to 10 or something, that's when she worked on her side hustle. And she did that Monday through Friday every day. And then weekends were like she didn't work on the weekends. And I was just talking to my boyfriend about it. And I was like, (laughs) imagine that being your life. Like every single day. It was like one night we'd gone out to dinner kind of impromptu. And it was like we were getting home. And it was like 7 o'clock when we were getting home. And I was like, if that was your life, if it was like 3 to 6 family time, 6 to 10 side hustle, you would not be able to do normal things. Like be like, oh, let's go to dinner. When do you live your life? (laughs) Yeah. is And I guess it's like on the weekends. Frankly, that sounds like a very... Um, incisive indictment of capitalism. Yeah. That tells me that Agreed. you're not being paid enough in your everyday job 
that you feel like you need to pick up this side hustle in order to become financially dependent or financially stable. Um, yeah. Which sucks. Uh, and there's like a lot of issues with that. Also, it's a little like, I don't know. Th- this is not a criticism, but it is worth noting that if you're a parent and you have two, one part-time job and one full-time job that you are mm-hmm. working during the week, you need a lot of help with your kids while that's yeah. happening. And like, not everybody has that. Not everybody has access to like perhaps a grandparent who's willing to watch the kids or a sister lives near family that can help or like has um reasonably priced a daycare or whatever right right? so i don't know there's just a there's a lot to that where again i just feel like it's uh, causing more question marks than it is answering anything for me that's how i felt too and it also was just like Sounds like it sucks. (laughs) It sounds like it sucks, but, and also like inherent to all of this is you have to have an idea and a skill that you can turn into a side hustle. And that's not that easy. It's not easy. And also not everything needs to be monetized. It's okay to have your me time be a skill or a hobby that is not something you do for money. Like that is important and and valuable and good for your soul. (laughs) Like it's that's okay too yeah and i mean i understand the if your goal is to like not have to work for a company anymore and have Mm -hmm. your own business well then that does require that you like build something of your own and yeah all of that but it's just i just feel like there's so much like it's like packaged as this is something you can do if you do all of these things that are actually really hard and maybe impossible for you to do. (laughs) And also you'll hate it. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like, well, okay, we're getting a little bit further away from accessible here. So that's cool. Um, So anyway, yeah, I just felt a little bit uh, not great about that. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It it sounds depressing. It it makes me think about how salaries have not gone up in uh, ratio with our productivity. And they also have not kept up with inflation. And Mm -hmm. all of the things that we're buying have gone up. And it's just like, it makes me think about the whole of our society in this like economy rather than like personal financial decisions. Because like, to your point, you can be really engaged in what you're doing but to a certain extent there are things you can't control and like yeah i don't know i don't know what yeah you're supposed to do about that yeah i mean i guess work more just... hours i guess <laughs> yeah um, start a third have business a... <laughs> from the hours Ooh. between 10 and 12 <laughs> yeah yeah oh my god um gross Okay, but I have another question for you, which is, um, so, you know, we've kind of touched on this can be intimidating. There's so much Mm -hmm. information. It can be overwhelming, et cetera. Um, So if you've ever felt that way, what is something that you wish you'd learned earlier about personal finance or investing or whatever that, um, like, if you could go back and tell your 20-year-old self, you would? Uh, This is not necessarily related to investing, Mm -hmm. um, but it's related to salary, Um, Mm. which is I would go back and tell myself always negotiate your salary and 
uh, I think there were times when I, for whatever reason, felt that that wasn't available to me, Mm -hmm. in part because the first um, position that I ever got that was full-time was grant-funded, and they literally did not have more money. (laughs) So that that didn't work. Um, But even, like, my some of my subsequent nonprofit roles, I felt like they had already told me there wasn't more in the budget or things like that. And I think I believed them and I Mm -hmm. was um, more giving them the benefit of the doubt that they were being honest about not having enough money in the budget. And now looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, $6,000 wouldn't have made or break made or broke their yearly budget, but it would have made a huge difference in my life. And so, you know, those sorts of things, it's like, yeah, you should always negotiate your salary. And it's important to do that even when it feels like the person who you'd be negotiating with would be like kind of sour about it or have already told you that like they won't do it. Um, Mm -hmm. I still wish I would have asked and advocated for myself because now as I'm closing in on 30 in in a couple of months, I look back on my 20s and I think the proudest I've been of myself has been when I was advocating for myself. Mm, And so mm -hmm. I wish that I would have done that a little bit more. Yeah. And that's actually such a good segue because the last theme I was going to touch on is like teaching women to navigate social barriers and stereotypes. And one of the big things in this is, is those societal things that hold women back more. And there's like a lot to talk about with, not just women, but also race, which mm-hmm. I'm not going to touch on, but just know that that is obviously a reality. Um, and one of the things is like salary, the wage gap, like women not being encouraged or taught to negotiate and the backlash that we can face when we do negotiate because of stereotypes or misogyny that is kind of embedded in the system. So she does give some really good information about how to navigate things like that, how to negotiate, um, Mm -hmm. why you should, why it is okay and expected and actually like can work against you if you don't sometimes. So like really there's reasons to do it. Um, So I was going to ask you another question, which is have you ever negotiated for a higher salary or benefits? And if not, what held you back? Which I feel like you touched on a little bit, but I don't know if you wanted to add anything else to it yeah um I've both not negotiated and then wished I had later and Mm -hmm. I have negotiated and been very proud of myself when I did um the first time that I ever negotiated anything was actually not a salary it was a scholarship money um for graduate school oh nice um I had received uh scholarships to a couple of different graduate programs and one of them was willing to pay me more Um, But I wanted to go to this other one. And so Mm. I um, had a standing scholarship at the place that I wanted to go to. And I went back to them and said, like, hey, um, this other school is offering me more money. Can you bump it up to, like, this amount? Because that would Mm -hmm. make it even. And I would really love to go here. Um, And they did it. And I I ended up getting um, a sizable more scholarship money and later had learned from multiple of my like grad school friends that they um had just gotten the like base amount that I had been offered mm. um and so I you know was really proud of myself for asking because yeah. they gave it to me right yeah 
Yeah. Um, oh, that's great. And so that was my first experience um, negotiating. And then um, I talked about my uh, experience with the grant funded position, which like, I don't really know. <laughs> I still would, I still wish I would have asked for more money, but like, I, I, I really honestly don't think that they could have given me yeah. more because again, yeah. it was like, it was built into a grant. It was a contractual thing. So, mm-hmm. um, that's a little bit of a unique situation. Yeah. And then, um, I've also had the experience of having multiple job offers at the same time, whereas like playing them against mm-hmm. each other and, mm-hmm. um, negotiating in that regard. Um, and one of the things that, um, my husband, Chris, who has been on the podcast, has uh, learned in his MBA program mm-hmm. um, is that psychologically people are m- happier when you negotiate with something than when you don't. Because mm-hmm. when you do negotiate, they feel like they got the best deal and they feel yeah. like assured that they got the person at the right price, so to say. Yeah. Um, but if you don't negotiate, they think they overoffered you. And so then they feel bad about it because they're like, oh, we could have got that person for less. So you know, it's like a little bit of a psychological thing. And I think it's good to know because it's like, no, people, no matter what, will feel better on either side if you negotiate. So you should always do that, right? Like that should always be a part of your practice because everyone walks away happier. Right. And I think what can hold people back is the stories of when people have negotiated and had their job offers rescinded, Mm -hmm. which is something that really does happen. And it's very easy for me with my job and no like financial strain right now to be like, you should still do it because if you get a job offer rescinded, then that's not a good place to work. But I, I do think that that is true. Like any place that would rescind a job offer because you negotiated instead of just telling you like, we can't negotiate this, there's no more money or whatever is not a place to spend your time. And I mean, I know that again, if you were desperate for a job, that is like very fucking easy for me to say. Um, But I think like that is something really important to remember in the moments when you were not desperate for a job because people job search when they're not desperate too. And you should always negotiate because getting an offer rescinded is just a sign that that was a really bad situation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think for a long time I felt like I did not have leverage to negotiate and I wish that I would have felt like, no, I, I do. You always do. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Right. And it's really not like people, I think people see a negotiation as something that they can only do when they deserve it. And it's not really about that. It's just like a money thing. And it's like the company isn't, I mean, some of them might be, but generally it's just like you say what you want and they're not like prove that you deserve that. <laughs> you know, like you don't I have mean, to do that. you're throwing out a number that is it, yeah, a really, like really unreasonable rank. Yeah. Like yeah. If, if for your first job at the age of 22, you throw out the number $250,000 a year yeah. with a 90% signing bonus yeah. I think they would be like okay that's wait that's insane yeah. don't don't absolutely. expect that from us right absolutely um but if you if you're throwing a, a number like it's important to like in negotiations to your do your research like go online figure out what other people are making use uh Glassdoor use like other sites that give you an idea of what you should be asking for. Um, and those are a compilation of genders, right? So you know that they're an average um, salary that people are getting regardless. It, it's not just women that might be lower salaries or whatever. Um, 
I've also, I did a career change and I often asked people that I was networking with, um, if you were me, what salary would you expect to be making? Um, which is a really helpful way of phrasing it as opposed to saying, well, what's your salary? Right. Yeah. Um, and people aren't gonna often will not tell you how much they're making. I try to tell people if they ask, because I think it's important to be transparent, but like, I, I think, um, asking that question in that way of like, what would you expect to be making with my experience level and my resume, um, is a really good way to get at an actual figure, a number that you can then, you know, work with. Right. Yeah. Actually another technique she describes in the book for like people you work with talking to them about how much they Mm -hmm. make to sort of suss out like if what you are making is fair, which is companies will often discourage that. I, I've been very discouraged. And say it's illegal. It's not. (laughs) It is not. It is actually illegal for them to prevent you from talking about it. So if you're in a situation where that is happening, that is illegal, but you do need to understand that it is like a very complicated conversation and Mm -hmm. many individuals don't want to have it with you because they fear retribution or whatever that could come from it. So one thing that she describes that you can do is sort of have a conversation that's over under. So you can ask someone like, do you make over or under 90K? Mm. And if they say over, then you can say, do you make over or under 100K? And then they can kind of just keep saying over under until you hit a range of like, okay, so I know this person makes between 90 and 100K. So that is just a way that you could have the conversation without someone having to tell you straight up the number they make, which can make people feel really uncomfortable, but it can be a really important thing to do to better understand where you are at and where maybe you were unfairly offered or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I frankly think that, um, within reason, all salaries should be transparent Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason why I think that is because if you can't justify where you're paying someone a certain amount, then you need to go back to the drawing board and figure out why this person is making this amount. Um, and so there's like both for people who are making too little and too much, right? Like there's, there should be reasoning attached to someone's salary, especially if it's a level or role where there are multiple of those people on the same staff or the same company. Um, and so I think within reason, those pay ranges should like, and, and again, like not to say like, oh, I'm, ma- you know, I'm making $67,523 a year. Like, okay, nobody's asking you to like say that. Right. Um, but I think a pay range is absolutely something that should be transparent to everyone in the company. And you should know why that person, you know, is making that amount, whether you want to list like experience or role responsibilities or whatever that should be transparent yeah absolutely I mean yeah I've had a lot of experiences with trying to find out what other people make or like being open about what I make and that it can create feelings of frustration for other people if they find out they're not making as much as you but it can also empower people to realize that they are worth more than what they accepted and that is worth learning and processing even though it can be really uncomfortable because yeah like I years ago when I I had negotiated for one position that was a temporary position and I got 
the baseline was 40 and I negotiated a 45 because it was temporary. I said, can you throw mm-hmm. in an extra five because this is like not permanent? Yeah. And they said yes. And then I transitioned from that temporary role to a full-time position in the company. Mm-hmm. And there was this weird thing that happened because the team I was moving to no one on that team was making 45,000 which is hilarious because that's no money at all right (laughs) and I think the next highest paid person that wasn't a manager who's like at my level was a I thought you were gonna say that wasn't a man (laughs) (laughs) that wasn't a man no that was like my job title level yeah yeah was 40 so I was making 5,000 more Uh uh-huh which like again in the scheme of things $5,000 is not Especially to a large company. It's like, that is not going to make or break anything. No, but the thing that was crazy about it was that instead of reevaluating how little they were paying people, they wanted to drop my salary down to 40K. <laughs> and they were, I mean, I remember the manager really who was like, the, the director of that team had this absolutely horrendous conversation with me in the middle of the lunchroom where oh, she was you. like, yeah, I remember this. well, what do you want? And I was like, well, I just want to stay at the salary I'm at. And she, and she was talking to me out in a public space about and ne- trying to like negotiate impromptu? my salary. Like she didn't yes. tell you it was, that conversation yes. was going to happen. No way. Which like way to be so ambushed in a public spot. Like, yeah. Ugh, and I'm so just gross. really glad that I held my own and I was like, no, I want to stay at the salary that I'm at. Like, it seemed like I was being aggressive in the moment that I was saying, like, you can't drop me down to 40. But in, in hindsight, it's like the absolute audacity of them to suggest that they would lower my pay because other people weren't making enough money. Like, yeah. it is sickening, but that happens. And I mean, just by the skin of my teeth, I managed to, like, not cave under that weird ambush pressure, you know? like <sighs> So gross. It is so disgusting. and But the more, like, I became friends with a lot of people at that job, and the more we talked about things like that, the more people realized, like, the the, the shit that they were putting up with there. And, yeah. you know, I was just talking to one of my other friends who left that company, and she kept asking for the, a title of manager for a couple of years, and they refused to give it to her, even though she she was asking for a raise, but she was additionally just asking for the title regardless of the raise. Sure. And I'm sure the raise was not, like, an exorbitant amount. The raise was, like, 5K. So it was, yeah, it was nothing. She eventually resigned, got a new position, and they posted her position immediately with a much higher salary and the manager title. And it was just, like, you could have given her the title of manager for nothing. And you still wouldn't for, out of what, spite? Like, Jesus Christ. So places I, I suck. have like a kind of similar situation to that, which is um, I had asked for um, a raise. You know, things are a little bit different. I've taken on more responsibility. I think I deserve whatever, like six thousand more dollars. Yeah, letter, like whatever it was, and um, and like they were like, yeah, that like is my manager was like, that's not gonna happen. And, um, then when I left that company, um, they ended up posting the role again and they posted two positions. Um, one that was more than I had been making. That was the lower of the two. And then another that was more than I had been making. And, um, 
I was so angry realizing that not only did they have more money to have given me more money at the time, but they had enough money for another $50,000 of uh, of salary that they they weren't dividing up into anyone else and all of that. So that was like extra frustrating because I I had been doing both of those roles. Like both mm-hmm. they split my yeah. job into two ended up like <laughs> paying the well, the whole salary between the two people was like double what I had been making. Right. And that's and so you realize that you were actually worth like if you're making 50 you were worth 100k right. and they wouldn't even give you 50. Right. Like <laughs> they wouldn't give me 56 so, or whatever yeah, it was, right? Yeah. Like, like and so it's just ugh. like yeah, that that sucks. <laughs> so yeah, it's really but and I think part of the disadvantage is that it just takes you time of like working and having these experiences to learn that and start like, or stop putting up with bullshit like that. But if, if people, when they're starting out can hear stories like this and learn earlier on, then they might put up with less. And it's just like, it's a hard thing, but yeah, like you should never, if you're getting a, permanent position you should never be like told that in order to make that work they have to pay you less money like that's (laughs) just all of it like every single one of these stories it's just like all of this sucks and i and this is why i feel that i'm not going to share it on a podcast but if an individual (laughs) is talking to me and like trying to get into the field and wants to know my salary i will tell them because i feel like it's so important to speak actual numbers like a lot of times people sort of evade it and it's much more helpful when you have real figures in your head, you know? Yeah, it is. It is. And it, it can be uncomfortable. Like, I feel protective of that information myself for lots of reasons. But, yeah, I I know that it's important to be transparent about it in the right circumstances because mm-hmm. it can really help people. Not just announcing it on a podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stop. If you're holding out, I'm not telling you here what I make. So, Work girls bye. like mystery. <laughs> That's right. Enigmatic. Um, <laughs> so the last thing I was going to say was just talk about some of the things I didn't like, which I feel like I really did already touch on, which is that mm-hmm. this is not really a true guide to how you can achieve financial independence because there's lots of things left out and missing to do that or there's just like an element of chance and luck that can't be replicated um it's also not i didn't think it was a super strong guide for growing significant wealth through investing or like i I think you know the idea of like purchasing real estate it's like obviously you know what you have to do in order to do that (laughs) is have money like (laughs) that is not that's not like an accessible solution. So thanks for that. So I think the building wealth conversation lot left to be desired for like, yes, starting a 401k and maybe buying some stocks is all good, but that is not really like, I don't know that that's what I think of when I imagine building wealth. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is a starting place, but I feel like a lot of this is just like her lack of defining good definitions at the beginning of the book, you know, cause it's like, you could have just said like, learn the basics of investing and it would have been like fine okay instead of like build wealth for generations it's like okay you're getting a little bit hyperbolic of yourself but i think like that's obviously much more of a sexy title that's yeah. like yeah. oh yeah i want to buy that book um and then my final complaint is that there was too many bad millennial jokes like <laughs> timothy chalamet and fried chicken <laughs> and like she has this whole bit that she keeps doing about how when she's retired with her hot when she's like a retired cougar with her hot young boyfriend, Paolo or whoever in like, it's in some tropical place. She's always describing like, that's her dream retirement. And it's just like, please stop being such an embarrassing internet millennial. Like, (laughs) 
she didn't go so far as to be like i love chonky doggos but it was like pretty close to that you know and i was just like this is not to my taste it's too much and i feel like um so have you heard of the skim the skim yeah it's a newsletter that has uh weekly news highlights that gets sent out Actually, I think it might be daily. So it gets sent out every day. It's an email newsletter that ends up in your email and you can like skim the ideas, like skim through it and find out what are the biggest stories that are happening that day. And it's not dissimilar to like, you know, a lot of places do sort of this kind of thing. Like NPR has a first in the morning edition and um, the New York Times has the daily. It's like kind of that idea. Um, But... (laughs) It's uh, when it's women run and it's supposed to be geared towards women. And I had signed up for it and I was like, oh, this is like kind of cool. And I had signed up for it maybe in like th- this was a while ago. So maybe like 2016 or 2017. Okay. And I had tried it out for a while. And the tone of it was such that it was kind of what you're describing, which is like embarrassing millennial trying too hard to online, but also not online enough because you would have been bullied for that and stop saying it um, yeah. vibes. But it was mm-hmm. also, it irritated me because I was like, this is supposed to be for women and it feels like it's condescending to women when oh. they're like, uh, like <laughs> it wouldn't be like, get in girls. We're learning about, binomics or whatever and it's like oh. okay this is like it, it's like cross the line from being like approachable and fun to being like actually condescending to me like i know what the economy is you don't totally. need to do this well but it's like, like the suggestion is that in order for me to pay attention you have to package it in a movie that i like watched gum, in the 2000s yeah like bubblegum like, pink mean girls references and it's like yeah. no i'm a full-ass adult i can read an article that doesn't have any references to pop culture and that's fine (laughs) yeah that that is exactly the vibe where I was just like I get that this is just like your brand of humor and you're trying to be like cute and approachable I mean it works for somebody right it does but it gives me like Rachel Hollis energy the like girl wash your face like toxic positivity (laughs) like yeah like haha let's joke about periods which she does not do in this book but it's just that kind of like we love women so much that we are going to be embarrassing. And it's like, We love okay. women so much we hate them, kind of. It's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, what are we doing? I know. I don't <laughs> like it. It's just the constant jokes about, like, the young hot boy that I'm going to my tropical island with. It's just like, this is embarrassing. Like, I don't know. It just it, feels it's like... It's really embarrassing. And also, like, I don't... I don't know. I just... Again, I'm... <laughs> I'm just getting too old for this. A little bit of a try hard thing. Like there was this one line that I keep thinking about, like I wish I could stop it. She was talking about the Vanguard total index fund, which is like a, a fund that you can invest into. And it's called VTI Vanguard total index. And then in parentheses, she's like Vanguard total index. If you're nasty. And I was just like, do we have to say things like this? Oh my like, God. I, oh, I don't understand why. We also, have that's to do not this. even, it's not even funny. Like, I it's get not. what she thought she was doing, but it didn't nasty. work. Like, and I hate it, and I want to throw up immediately. Yeah. It was just like not my 
style of humor. It was too cutesy, millennial, yuck, yuck, and I did not like it. So now that I've just, like, eviscerated that book for you all, it was really... I. I did enjoy it and I found a lot of the information helpful and like reassuring that like I am doing a lot of the right things and Mm -hmm. I just need to keep going and keep exploring and take it piece by piece, you know, learn a little bit. You don't have to learn it all at once. Like just keep trying and and experimenting and, and learn it and you can do it even though like men can be terrible and act like you're a dumb idiot for asking a question, (laughs) you know, like just keep going. (laughs) And surprise, surprise, they do that a lot of times even when it's not about finance. So I think that's just patriarchy. For damn sure, yeah. (laughs) So anyway, we must continue on even though it is the worst and I would like to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, can I give a pop culture uh, pairing for this? Oh, good. I didn't even prepare one. Go see the Barbie movie. (laughs) Oh my God. I just thought last night it was excellent. It's so good. Yeah, it was so good. I I loved loved it too. So much. Greta Gerwig is a national treasure. She never disappoints. Mm. It was exceptional. Yes. Anyway, um, so that's your antidote. <laughs> yeah, that's a great. Yeah. So ladies, women, non-binary people who maybe have a femme lean, please know that this book is worth reading, but just prepare yourself for like, it's not everything that you need in a, a financial guide. <laughs> maybe you need some supplemental in income and research. It's, it's, <laughs> It's not everything you need, and it's some of the things you don't need, a.k.a. Yeah. fried chicken jokes. <laughs> yes, exactly. But uh, it was good, and I think you will learn some helpful things. So please uh, support Tori Dunlap's work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Love. What a vote of confidence. <laughs> um, anyway, that's all I have for you, Kate. Thanks Amazing. for providing Thank my pop culture pairing, as you almost always do. <laughs> Thanks for jumping in and just talking about Barbie for no reason. (laughs) I think it was the perfect pairing. Um, And you should all join us next time for more of our bullshit. 